May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. As we enter into this most holy of weeks, with a story that is so familiar to us, a question is posed to us by these texts. How do we become hearers of the word? How do we become hearers of the word when the story of the passion is so familiar to us? Well, I think to answer this, we must put aside the assumption of our culture that an emotional response is what deems a story worthy. That how I feel about something is what makes it worthy of my attention. Yes, we should all empathize with the sufferings of Jesus, but is this what makes this story powerful and meaningful? The suffering of an innocent man? Now, there is an important tradition in the Christian church that encourages us to meditate on the sufferings and wounds of Christ. But these are not just a response to engender empathy with the suffering of an innocent man but to identify ourselves with Christ himself as Christ identifies himself with us. What I mean is that it is important not to engage the effectiveness of the power of the passion narratives based solely on our emotional response, because we know that familiar stories breed complacency at best and contempt at worst. So the real test of whether or not we are real hearers of the word of God, about whether we are not truly hearing the word of God as it comes to us in the Passion, is this. Am I letting myself be told in no uncertain terms that I am a sinner responsible for Jesus' death and betrayal and death? Does the Passion of Jesus Christ cut me to the quick, or is it just not another part of high religious drama? And we Anglicans love our religious drama. Do we hear the words of judgment enacted on the cross, or do we plug our ears, waiting for it all to be over with so that we can move on to the joy of Easter morning? You see, too often we become passive spectators. But in the drama of Holy Week, we are not mere spectators. We are participants. The story of the passion is the story of my and your, of our rejection of God, a rejection unto his death, even death upon a cross. You see, we like to think that if God showed up on the scene here this morning, we would be quick to welcome him right this way, God. But the narrative and the events of Holy Week tell us a different story, the real story. God came to us and we killed him. As much as I like to think otherwise, the rejection of God is the default setting for humanity. After all, I can do a better job of organizing my life. I can do it better than anyone else. And I don't need God to tell me what to do. And so as one theologian describes the situation, what once happened in history on a hillside in Palestine 2,000 years ago makes visible what has been happening in the entire human tragedy from beginning to end. God is struck and contemptuously spat upon as he humbles himself to the uttermost for us, as he takes our rubbish upon himself. Jesus' passion shows us for what we are, 
perennial rejectors of God, who often use sentimental religion and piety as a replacement for God. To make ourselves feel a bit better about the whole situation, in an attempt to convince myself that, no, I have not rejected God, I am a good person. I go to church occasionally and I don't go out of my way to hurt anyone. But the cross stands and it offends our sensibilities and the nice stories we like to tell about ourselves. But the cross shows us reality. It shows us the truth that we have made a world that rejects, that doesn't want God. The terrible judgment of the cross is the hour when God lets the world have its way. On Good Friday, God lets the world be exactly what it wants to be. The cross exposes the moment when God lets the world have what it wants. Life without God lived on its own terms. God allows the world to pull the house down upon itself. And what is this world we have created? Well, the Passion narrative makes it clear. It is a world in which the innocent and the helpless suffer, where the powerful do whatever it takes to retain power, where bystanders scream out for the blood of their enemies, for those who've run afoul of popular opinion and taste, a world in which we are at enmity with God, at enmity with our neighbors, and at, even at enmity with ourselves. A world in which all of our self-righteous virtue signaling only confirms our shared guilt. In one of her Passion Sunday sermons, Fleming Rutledge tells the story of a woman who, upon leaving church after the service that morning, was very happy to tell Rutledge that during the congregational reading of the Passion narrative that we just did, that she did not yell out with the rest, crucify him. And why not? Why did she abstain from playing her part in the story? Well, because as this woman explained with a smug smile on her face, she would never, never, never do or say such a thing to anyone, let alone Jesus. What is troubling about this story that Rutledge tells, and as she herself notes, is that this person completely missed the whole point of the cross, and as a result, she missed the opportunity to be made, remade from the inside out. You see, the liturgy of Palm Sunday is meant to show us how each and every one of us can go from one minute saying one thing and go to its opposite in the next. To show us how easy it is to move from Hosanna, Hosanna, to crucify him, crucify him. But the judgment of the cross is good news because it exposes our pretensions to live without God. But it also shows us that God refuses to let us go, even when we want to let go of him, even when we condemn and crucify him. You see, God refuses to give up on us, even when we've had enough of him. Anglican theologian John Webster puts it this way, The story of the Passion, those few brief hours one afternoon in the history of the world, are the outworking of the eternal will of God for our salvation. Jesus' abandonment and death are not his defeat. It does not spell the overthrow of God's ways that humanity has finally rid itself of God. Quite the opposite. It's the fulfillment of those ways. The fulfillment of the eternal resolve of God to be our God. To take up our cause. To put an end to our op opposition and to establish peace. 
In St. Luke's telling of Palm Sunday, he tells us that when Jesus drew near and saw the city of Jerusalem, he wept over it. There are two times in the Bible where Jesus is mentioned as crying. One at the death of Lazarus, his friend, and one here as he approaches the city. Jesus is weeping for the city of Jerusalem, God's holy city, but also, as the story of Israel tells us, a city of continual disobedience and disappointment. Jesus knows he's going into this very city into his death, that those who are cheering with jubilant exultation, Hosanna, Hosanna, are the same who will in a few mere days be screaming for his execution. And so, Jesus weeps. But he does not weep for himself. He weeps for the people. He weeps for us. He weeps for you. The tears he sheds are from the wellspring of God's eternal love, a love that refuses to give up, a love that looks at our rejection and says, I will always love you nevertheless. Jesus' tears are wrung out of God's inmost heart of compassion. The Messiah weeps for the sin that brings him to Jerusalem to die for her and for our redemption. Jesus weeps for you and Jesus weeps for me. He weeps out of his desire to be in relationship with us. Yes, it is our rejection of God that results in the brokenness of the world and all its suffering and misery. But God does not shrug his shoulders and say, well, what are you going to do? The God of the Bible takes our misery and our suffering so seriously that he was willing to take it upon himself. We put God on the cross, but God was willing to be put on the cross that we might find healing and wholeness. I was struck by a story that Jonathan told a few weeks ago in his sermon about a girl who cut herself in an attempt to rid herself of the agonizing numbness she experienced. She found her freedom, you will recall, in an icon of Jesus' own suffering and scars. Our scars tell a story. Jesus' scars tell a story. What the story of this young woman's battle and their final defeat tells us, that our scars do not get to define us, because Jesus' scars now define us. His tears are our tears. With his wounds, he bears our wounds. As much as I am responsible for putting him on the cross, God was willing to be put on the cross so that I might find healing and wholeness in his scars. In a moment that can only be described at God's hand at work, I was walking to the parish office one morning this week, contemplating the preparation of today's sermon. And as I passed by Brian and Brenda's, Brian had just arrived home and shared with me a song he was listening to. You remember this, Brian? Good, his memory's still in check. It was a song by the artist Stephen Curtis Chapman called Beautiful Scars. And I took this as a moment of divine intervention. And so I will close this morning by reading a small part of that song. For us, bruised and broken, for us, he was forsaken. Our wounded healer suffered to set us free. See in his hands and his feet. Beautiful scars, beautiful scars. Reminders of the wounded love that carried us this far. Beautiful scars, turning the marks of our pain into beautiful scars. See in his hands and his feet. 
beautiful scars, beautiful scars, reminders of the Savior's love that had carried us this far, beautiful scars turning the marks of our pain into beautiful scars. Amen.